You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud. It's what women are talking about three times a week. I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman. And I'm Jessie Stevens. And on the show today, is your taxi light on? Have you ever dated someone whose taxi light always seems to be on? And how can you tell? Also, a listener dilemma from a woman who just really, really wants her workmates to ask her out for a coffee, but they never do. (laughs) But first, here we go. Holly's just limbering up. I wish you could see her. And I also wish you knew that in the morning meeting, just before Holly starts, we have a meeting where we plan what's going to be in the show and we work out our topics. And then we go, who's going to bring each of the topics? I hate you. Jesse and I both just went, bags not bring China. (laughs) Holly was too slow. And so we begin. (laughs) So we begin. Please explain. I am going to try and explain. One of the most complicated news stories of the week. A bit of context, a bit of background, because what we always want to do in Mamma Mia Out Loud is we're talking about what people are talking about. And a lot of people are talking about a cartoon that appeared in Chinese media this week and what it means for Australian-China relationships. The repugnant post made today of an image, a falsified image, of an Australian soldier threatening a young child, it is deeply offensive to every Australian, every Australian who has served, every Australian who serves in that uniform today, it is utterly outrageous and it cannot be justified on any basis whatsoever. So I don't know if you've noticed, but things aren't going well. We'll start with that. Mm. Kevin Rudd, who is our former Prime Minister and is an expert in this space, said on 7.30 last night to Lee Sales that if he had to describe Australian-China's relationship, he'd say it's in the pits. And if there's anything lower than the pits, if the pits have a basement, it's there. That's where it is. We're not the first cab off the rank here. Other allies have been through a similar experience, but this one is probably uh, the granddaddy of them all, given the breadth of the assault on Australia's trade interests because China is politically unhappy with the tone and content uh, of Australia's foreign policy posture. It's always been a very tricky relationship between Australia and China because China is one of our biggest trading partners and they're our closest superpower. So... A little bit of kind of scale on that is China it accounts for about 35% of Australia's exports, a trade. So it's a big part of our economy. And when Whereas you say we I'm- do not... Oh, give like no. the balance of power is much smaller. We're not a big percentage of their trade. Mm. When you say they're our closest, do you mean geographically closest or the person that we're closest they're to ge- like emotionally? They're geographically closest and depending on your view of Australia, then the other. Emotionally closest. Yes, because one of Australia's issues in this space is always juggling US and China mm. as our big superpower allies, right? Because US and China Not friends. Not at the moment. And so this has always been a difficult dance to do, Mm. but even Kevin Rudd admits that it's never been more difficult than right now because China, under their relatively new leader, Xi Jinping, is on a very aggressive expansionist jack, right? So very much about wanting to extend their power and influence around the world and build their economy and so on. Now, that is at an all-time high, which is why tensions are at an all-time high with lots of the superpowers and big trading partners. 
But what's happened is that over the years, we have done a few things to piss off the Chinese because one of the problems with our relationship is we have to keep them very close and happy economically for reasons just explained, while at the same time not appearing to excuse or condone human rights abuses, which we know are, are happening which, because, yeah, their regime is quite authoritarian. Yes. It's really hard to get news out of China. China doesn't have Twitter or Facebook. There's a lot of censorship. So They have WeChat, though, don't do. we? Yeah, and obviously that's at odds with Australia and the US being all about free speech. Mm-hmm. So there's that tension politically, so, but we also need them. Where yeah. does Afghanistan come well, into this? Let me let me tell you some things. So in the past, we've done a few things to piss them off while trying to do this dance. For example, back in 89, after Tiananmen Square massacre, when likely thousands of protesters were slaughtered by the army, we'll never know exactly how many. Bob Hawke stood up and made a very emotional speech about that and he offered asylum to Chinese students and that really pissed China off. Um, John Howard, during his stay, welcomed the Dalai Lama, which also really pissed China off. And last year, Australia, among, along with many other countries, signed a letter condemning China's treatments of Muslim minorities in their country who are reportedly forced into camps and unpaid labour. Earlier this year, of course, when COVID began That's spreading it. quite rapidly, Australia said we think there should be an investigation into well, how this started. That's the straw that broke the camel's back in this situation. So the reason that things have gone from always a bit dicey to really, really dicey Mm. is this. So Australia has supported the investigation into the origins of the coronavirus, and this has really annoyed China a lot. Chinese government have expelled Australian reporters. They've slapped massive trade tariffs on Australian goods, including beef and now wine. There are some Australian wine producers who say they're going to lose 95% of their (gasps) business because China have put a 200% trademark up on all Australian wine. And the Chinese government have advised Chinese nationals not to travel to Australia when they can because they say racist attacks are rife and it's no longer safe for them to do so. Then this week, so that's kind of the landscape in which this cartoon comes onto the scene, right? So things are already very worrying. And then a cartoon is published. A spokesman for the Chinese government tweeted this doctored image, this cartoon, that depicted an Australian SAS soldier holding a knife to the throat of a young Afghani child under the line, don't worry, we're here to save you. Now, obviously, this was triggered by the investigation into alleged war crimes committed by 32 Australian SAS soldiers. And the image itself was created by a young graphic artist who works for the Global Times, which is widely viewed as the mouthpiece of of the Chinese government. Scott Morrison, very strong in his condemnation and has demanded for it to be taken down from the account of China's foreign ministry spokesperson who put it up and condemned by Chinese officials. Broadly speaking, what China have said is that's pretty freaking hypocritical of you for a country that prides itself on free speech. So the artist who created it himself, who's a young artist, he says it's totally hard to believe that a head of state like Morrison got totally bent out of shape about my computer graphics work. I'm flabbergasted that he organised a press conference to fume about it. And then today a writer for the Global Times has written that the country that owes an apology is Australia to China. 
and to Afghanistan first and foremost for slaughtering their innocent people. It should also apologise to the Chinese artist whose work was groundlessly smeared as false. It needs to seriously reassess the damage done to its own international optics caused by this double standard outburst regarding freedom of speech and human rights. And then today, the publication doubled down with another cartoon, this time depicting a kangaroo holding the scales of justice and a bloodied knife. So oh my God. things aren't getting better anytime soon. Can I ask a question in all seriousness? Because I haven't. I, I know that there's this um, report that is highly redacted, uh, which means there are parts that are sort of censored that has come out into these alleged war crimes by this SAS troops in Afghanistan, Australians. Is there a, like an inquiry or yeah, a yes. trial or something? Yeah. And do we know whether or not this idea of an Afghani child being slaughtered, is that one of the accusations? Yes. So what It, it is. Well, not a, ch- not a little child as depicted in that image, but teenage boys. So oh. they're, as part of this investigation that has been ongoing for years, actually, about the behaviour of this particular SAS troop in Afghanistan, one of the allegations is that young Afghani boys were killed. So my understanding is that Scott Morrison's objection is not necessarily to the cartoon, like he's not saying the cartoon shouldn't exist, but when you have a foreign minister spokesperson like when when yeah. when a political leader posts it that takes it to a whole other level well, yeah, right? because there's Diplomacy. all kinds of stuff on the internet right there's yeah. me- awful memes about all kinds of things but when the foreign minister's office yeah shares it it's That's like donald other. trump sharing a, a picture of a white supremacist you know, symbol which he does morrison does want it? He wa- It's about the cartoon. Yeah, he like wants, he wants it taken down, and the Chinese government to condemn the cartoon. But what's complicated here is that he's saying, or broadly, they're saying this is a piece of propaganda, right? To just anti-Australian sentiment, and also, and this is a valid point, any Australians who might be in China right now, this could be really dangerous because it's expressing that Australians are murderers. What makes this more complicated is that, of course, in China they don't have Twitter, so you look at it and you go. Who's the propaganda for? Because it wasn't tweeted so that Chinese people could see it. No. It appears that it was to get under Morrison's skin, which Mm. he did. It was quite uncharacteristic of Morrison because he was very quick to condemn it. And the criticism says he condemned this cartoon much more than he condemned that report. And so that's what a lot of the criticism is about. Now, Australia has a history of criticising, which is valid, the human rights violations of the Chinese. Does I think he condemned the report. I'm sure not, I no, he did. He prepared Australia. He, that it was going to be de- very hard. He said hard. it was going to be very hard for Australians. But there, he's obviously, as every politician has done, been at great pains to always say, but it does, you know, that this not is very true. Yeah, exactly. And that's, of course. and so he's been at great pains for that. Yeah. One of the things that happens in this China Australia debate, and this is Kevin Rudd always says this, is it's very popular generally in the electorate to appear to be very tough on China. We're not going to let the Chinese push us around. That kind of rhetoric Mm -hmm. is popular in the Murdoch press. It's popular, you know, in their focus groups. However, they do let Chinese government push them around on all kinds of things. The port of Darwin has just been largely sold to a big Chinese company. Obviously, Chinese rights in our mining industry are an enormous. So, again, it's back to this very delicate balance. But Jesse's right. The issue about the cartoon is 
all about pissing off Australia. Yes. And there's a theory that um, that the Chinese government wants to make an example of Australia to a point of saying, don't with us, yeah. you know, stop mm. pushing back on our things and, and announcing these investigations and all this stuff. We will take you down. You know, we will double the price of your wine. We will, um, you know, we'll will kill your beef export industry and all these things as an example to the whole world because Australia is important to Same, China but not but not not as important as China is to Australia and that's what's difficult is a relationship isn't equal but is China not allowed they're being lectured to by Australia yeah. about their war crimes to me I'm looking at it and I'm in two minds about it because it's also hypocritical for the Chinese to lecture us about free speech when it's like you might be committing war crimes every day and we would never know because you censor that. And so who did this investigation? Our government did. The media forced it, but our government did this because we want transparency. So that's something that Australia can be proud yeah, of to and, an and extent. And around the world, the investigation is being praised by lots of countries who are saying that this is what needs to happen, mm -hmm. is that these war crimes that were committed, allegedly committed in Afghanistan, need to be have a light shone on them, which is what the government's trying to do. But it's, it's also worth remembering is that about 1.2 million Australians identify as being of Chinese descent. We have a very long history of trade and immigration. In many ways, we're a really tight partnership because of our geographical and cultural closeness. But this difficult dance, it just appears to be turning into a brawl on the dance floor. We discussed a while back now the escapades of Married Movie Star. Dominic West. You might know him from The Wire or he was in the movie Chicago or the Les Mis miniseries. Anyway, he was filming a movie recently with Lily James. She was Cinderella, Mamma Mia, the most recent one. And the two of them were hanging out, getting a bit close, and it appeared that there was a bit of kissing that went on, right? And then what happened was he, a few weeks later, Dominic West put out that letter. Remember he had a letter? And he it was and his like, wife did a, a show of solidarity, like a, of unity, where they came out, fronted up to the press, had their picture taken and put a letter on the front gate of their very fancy mansion what that did it say? said, we are together, we are strong. We are we, fine, basically. We would like you to respect our privacy at this time. Yes. Oh. Handwritten note. So they've been married for like 10 years or something, quite a while. They said, yep, yeah, marriage is strong. But then an article appeared in The Times this week that, was very clever, very clever take on it. And it said, men who always have their taxi light on is Dominic West one. Now, the taxi light analogy some people might remember from Sex and the City. There was a very famous conversation uh, where Miranda said, It's not fate. His light is on, that's all. What light? Men are like cabs. When they're available, their light goes on. They wake up one day and they decide they're ready to settle down, have babies, whatever, and they turn their light on. The next woman they pick up, boom, that's the one they'll marry. It's not fake. It's dumb luck. But what happens, and this is the point of this article, if that light never goes off? Mm -hmm. If once you get into a relationship, you're just a lights-on guy or a lights-on girl and you're always kind of available looking. and you're like, get... And not necessarily looking to settle down but maybe just looking exactly have some fun. Are there some people, do you reckon, who this is just programmed into them? They never turn the light off because they're kind of always looking for the next best thing. And do you reckon that this Dominic West is one of them? Holly? Well, 
I always loved that speech from Miranda because I absolutely believe it to be true. I think that a lot of what makes a relationship work or not is timing. And it's all about whether you're ready, whether you, you know, have you, have you just had your heart broken? Are you feeling damaged? Are you feeling ready? Are you old enough now? Have you sowed your wild oats? Whatever. For men and women, I reckon there's a point. And if your lights are both on, it's on. But this is a really interesting interpretation of it because I think we would all know or have dated people whose light never goes off. This is, goes to my theory that monogamy doesn't suit everybody. We we sort of agree as a culture that it's what we all should do. But I think there's some people for whom they love it. It's like a comfy pair of shoes and they're like, this is where I want to be. And then for other people, they are always going to be looking over your shoulder who's coming in the door next and sometimes literally you know you can tell and I, re- I I'm sure that as women of the world we've all encountered those men we might have they might be friends of our friends or our partners or they might be one of our friends partners who you can just tell from the way they interact with you and the way they interact with other women around the place that they their light is on and there's something about Flirting is one thing because we all know that there are harmless flirts and then there are flirts who are definitely looking for the flirting to take another tack. So flirting is one thing, but I think it's that idea of always looking for something better. And what is it in a person when you can tell that? Is it something about the way they try and look in your eyes when they're talking, the way they're like looking at you in a different way than someone who isn't sexually interested? There's a an assumed intimacy that people get I suppose and I I recognize this so much I went out with someone who we'd been dating for months and months and he would go to a bar or a club or whatever and pick up girls as though he was single like it was just so in his nature when you were dating when mm. when we were dating yes yeah. so I remember he went to this bar one night and literally liked the girl across the ca- really went out of his way I mean it's one thing to Girls weren't all over him, but he was going out of his way to be like, can I have your number? I think you're beautiful, whatever. And I would find these messages because I couldn't stop looking of this back and forth because I was like, how does he deny that he's in a relationship? Like it's quite clear on Instagram. Even to himself. Yeah, and he would say in these messages like, oh, no, not, not on anymore. We hadn't been an on and off relationship. Like it was very clear we were still together. It was clear to you. Yes, exactly. Well, I thought so. (laughs) And I remember this thing of one night before he went out and he went to this bar and I couldn't go, I was working, and I ironed his shirt and then he used that ironed shirt to pick up other girls. And that just stuck in my head. I haven't because it was just What do you mean he used the shirt? Well, because he had his ironed shirt. I wonder if she would have said yes if his shirt wasn't so beautifully ironed by his (laughs) girlfriend back at home. That is terrible. Anyway, and I realise with hindsight that he was deeply insecure and that he needed this constant validation. And I look at him now and there is a piece looking at people like that and going, you will cheat on every single person you're with because of like an inner kind of pain within you. That's very gracious. But it it makes you feel better because there's a lot of men and women Mm. walking around who are thinking that it was them and that they were never good enough. And I really, there was another story in the media this week that was about this narrative and it's about Amal Clooney and George Clooney, right? Is George Clooney gave an interview to people or something and you know how he never talks about anything. And he just said that from the minute I met her, it became clear that I suddenly put her needs above mine and my life had changed forever. And that made me want to vomit because 
it absolutely just perpetuates the fairy tale that all a playboy needs is the right woman. Yeah. And so every woman is constantly like, I'm the right woman. It and must you be me. It's the Cinderella them. bullshit, yeah. right? It's like, I'm the right woman. I'm the one to change him. And that's not true. George Clooney's light was on in a good way, as in... Mm. He'd he was spent ready. 45 years sleeping with the most beautiful women in the world and he was ready. And then he met possibly the most beautiful woman in the world who was also all these other things and he was ready, or at least it appears so in the magazines. But like the, the idea that everybody's a cheater until they meet the right woman or man is just a nonsense. I hate that. So is this light on thing about being a cheater? Well, it's about always being open to the possibility of, of something better. So it's like acting like you're single even when you're in a relationship. And having this philosophy, and I think some people can never let it go, which is, and a lot of people in long-term relationships some like let themselves vocalise this, like, is this as good as it gets? Exactly. And they've always got, like, they go into social mm. situations and they're like, is the grass greener, is the grass greener? And their light, when it should have really switched off and there are clear signs to go, it's off, they just go, I'm going to keep it on just to see if I can upgrade a little. So if you meet someone on the apps, is the symbolic version of turning your light off deleting your apps? Because I've heard that that is quite a milestone in a relationship that you both say, okay, we're deleting the apps. Our lights are officially off. Yes, definitely. But then someone secretly keeps an app. Yeah, that's hidden. what Iron Shirt Boy did. He was still on the, the apps low light. to see to see <laughs> if he could. St- oh, it was horrible. The things I bought, but basically, he was still on the apps, and they would sit there when he was with guys and just see who he could match with. But and also, I was like, that's not what you do. I don't think this is just about men, right? Because I know. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure I've been this person at times, that there's something very addictive about attention from people who are finding you fabulously attractive and interesting, or at least you think they are, right? And in theory, you're supposed to stop getting that when you enter into the serious monogamous mm-hmm. relationship. But that leaves a really big gap for people for whom that was a big part of their self-esteem or True. their personality, is that suddenly I'm not allowed to be... Attractive. Some people just love to flirt. You always say, Mia, that you love to flirt. You flirt with with friends. You know, yeah, like women, friends. It's because it's about that uh, dogs, that attraction and mm. attention that is either part of you or isn't. And how do you get it when yeah. you're not allowed to do it anymore? So yeah. Mia's light is on, but not necessarily for sex. No, no. Hi, my name's Amy. This is a question for Out Loud. Look, I need some advice for my 16-year-old daughter. Have a bit of a dilemma. We have a listener dilemma that uh, came to us from an outlouder. She writes, I work in a company of around 40 people, mostly young, and after most of the year working from home, we're slowly going back to the office. That and the fact that people are tentatively arranging Christmas drinks and parties has reminded me of one of the things that always makes me feel a bit left out and I don't know what to do about it. I have a preschooler and very few other people in my team have kids. Since I had my daughter, they never invite me out to social occasions, not in pre-COVID world and now not in COVID normal world either. If it's mentioned, they say things like, oh, you wouldn't want to come, you're a mum. Ouch. Or they assume that I can't come because I'm a mum. 
but I have a partner who is perfectly capable of being with our daughter if I'm out and I'd actually love to be included in social things. I'd like to have a drink or a coffee with my colleagues. I don't want to be at home doing tea time and bath time and books every night. I also don't want to miss out on the closeness that comes from workmates socialising together. How do I express this without sounding A, like I am bitter or complaining, or B, like I'm a bad mother? I feel like a lot of my young colleagues have internalised that good mums don't want to be away from their kids, but please, sometimes that's exactly what I want. (laughs) Help. I love this so much. It's funny, I had kids earlier than a lot of my friends and I used to use that to get out of going to a lot of things that I didn't want to go to, work functions mostly. But then you get to the point where people stop asking you because you've said no so many times. People don't ask you anymore. But uh, Holly, did anyone ask you out anymore? No one ever asks me out anymore in the office, but that's okay because it would probably be awkward. And also you're the boss, so that's a different thing. Yeah, that's a different dynamic. It's No it's, one wants the boss like around. Nobody wants the older mumsy boss around. Mm. <laughs> but I would love to know, Jessie, as a young person, like, do you, why don't you ever ask me out to drink? Okay, so <laughs> may I say that's not it. It's nothing to do with being a boss and it's nothing to do with being mumsy. It's that I think there is a, we've been told no by the mums or we've asked mums in the past and we've been burned by a mum who looks at you and says basically like it's a Friday night who's going to look after my kid if I go to drinks or I have to pick my child up from school or whatever. And so you end up feeling a little silly or you feel a bit embarrassed that drinks, and I wonder if this person who who asked this question is aware, but like drinks are a very spontaneous thing. And so there are some people who kind of need the drinks to be, or Friday night drinks to be organised on the Monday. There's a time and a place so, for spontaneity. Exactly. I've always said. Yes. And like on a Friday, because I don't have kids, which you can feel a bit guilty about when you're surrounded by mm. colleagues who every minute of their day is kind of structured around needing to be there for someone. You go, oh, it's Friday afternoon. It's three o'clock. Do I want to go for a drink? Don't I want to go for a drink? And then you kind of go back and forward and then you do. And then you're like, oh, I might go get dinner. And that's really annoying to someone who's a mum. So you sort of don't want to just put that. It it seems ridiculous to even ask. Like we have someone in the office who lives two hours away and so has to drive. So sometimes you go, oh, is it a bit rude for me to even say, do you want to go and get a drink? Because you've thought about traffic and you need to drive and all of those things. You're actually trying to be really considerate. So I'm absolutely guilty of this. And I think it can feel like you're being left out but my advice would be you got to organize the drinks you got to say guys it's monday let's put drinks in the diary for friday i like that i like that and let's do and then you've sent a message and so next time you'll get invited but i do think that a lot of people without kids have ended up feeling silly a lot of times for inviting someone and just being told like i can't come can i ask you in an honesty pyramid and this isn't about me or Mia, because we know we're we. There are many reasons why you wouldn't want to have a drink with us. <laughs> but is there ever a bit of the like? If most of you are young, relatively unattached people, is there a bit of like she's just going to come and talk about her kids? No, I don't think so. And this thing about like thinking talking about kids is boring. Like, what the hell are the rest of us talking about? Dating dogs, dogs. Dating. like nothing that's especially interesting. So I don't think there's a fear that. 
the conversation isn't going to be what you want it to be or you can't tell Mm. your dirty dating stories because someone's going to be there and judge you. I think it's also a case of like, oh, would they even want to come? Like they kind of have better things to do. I I think an important thing to remember to those who don't have kids is that people who have slightly older kids have more in common with you than they do with the people who have really little kids Mm. like babies and toddlers. No one goes out for drinks after work more than my mum. With the young people. Yeah. She just well, like. Well, she's got grown up kids. She's got so grown up different. kids. So but she's even, like, I'm free. But even at Holly's age, and certainly at my age, when your kids aren't toddlers and babies anymore, probably when they're school age, you've got, like, I find it personally, I've got more in common with my friends who don't have kids or who have older kids rather than the ones who've got really little kids. Because there's that time in those first few years where you are constantly just feeling. Like you are juggling, you've got to spend every minute that you're at work, you're robbing from your kids and every minute you're with kids, you're robbing from work and you feel totally frazzled and drinks can be a real challenge. Always invite, if in doubt, invite. If you wanted to get drinks on Friday night, why didn't you just ask rather than pretend like write this fake dilemma in? (laughs) Holly and I didn't know how to bring it up. I have to raise one more point from our anonymous out louder that I'd like Jesse Stevens to, to address. I feel like my young colleagues have internalised that good mums don't want to be away from their kids. Would you, not necessarily you personally, but your cohort, have any judgment about a mum of young kids who was always at Friday night drinks? Not at all. Good there wouldn't be, a, nah, not at all. Because it's We've just taught like, her well. <laughs> you have a partner. but And I, and I want to like make it clear too, you know how you're a friend with someone and then you've asked them to drinks five times and they've said no five times, eventually you've got to ask. And I'm going to just send a little message to the mums, which is I understand that you have a baby and your whole life changes. But to that friend who hasn't had a baby, it might have felt like rejection. I think it's requesting a lot of someone to then expect them to know that your life stage has changed and that you're ready to hang out. So maybe you've got to make the first move. Put your light on. Put your light on. out louder. Put your light on. Organise the coffee. Organise the drinks. And uh, just show those young people that you've still got it. (laughs) If you have a question that you'd like us to answer... What should they do, Hol? Well, you should either jump in the Outlouders Facebook group because we're always up for a dilemma in there and also the Outlouders themselves are very helpful. But if you want it on the show, the absolute best thing to do is to record a voice memo because we love to hear your voices. Record a voice memo on your phone. You and can be it, anonymous. You don't yeah, have to say you what your name say, is. You don't have to say that. Um, and you can email it to us at outloud at mamamia.com.au. I have a recommendation. What is it? It is my friend, my obsession, my woman of the year, Hillary Clinton. You're, you're four years too late, yeah, Holly Wainwright. I really have. I really, really am. You know, I wasn't even that interested in Hillary a couple of years you ago. You never were. Come, but she's given an interview on Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert podcast that is just heaven. Why? First of all, I don't always listen to Armchair Expert, but I do sometimes It can listen. be tedious. Like, yeah, I'm I, not into it. I like him to a point. But sometimes I'm a bit like, well, whatever. But he can be very charming and interesting, and he is with Hillary. But one of the things that's, I think one of the reasons why I'm really enjoying listening to interviews and things that Hillary's doing at the minute is she seems to have come out of the trauma of four years ago in a much freer kind of way. And now she can say lots of stuff she couldn't really say, you Mm -hmm. know, when she was actually running for office. But 
It is quite mortifying that Dax Shepard opens the interview by saying, I know that you're someone who hates compliments. It's very clear from watching Hillary in all her spaces that she is very uncomfortable with praise and compliments. And I think we share this in common. You hate compliments. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at it. And I have tried to get better. I used to be one of those people that would always parry them. And no, oh, no, no, you know, no. Well, that was not that hard or this was not that, you know, like you see. And then people said to me, you know, come on, accept the compliment. I don't know. Okay. And he said, so I'm just going to give you some to, to see how you handle them. And he hits her with, you have the most dazzling blue eyes I've ever seen. Oh. Which is not really what you thought he was going to say. No. Dax has got his light on. And not what Hillary thought he was going to say either. And she is so uncomfortable but so gracious. And she kind of does this, thank you. I can take absolutely no credit for that. That's uh, the genes of my parents and my oh, like, she, I like, love how nerdy she is. The most interesting bit on this show, though, after apart from her dealing with Dax's, you know, possibly inappropriate compliments, is they have a really interesting conversation where Dax talks to her about what the left's problem, in inverted commas, is. And in terms of, you know, the average, I mean, his characterization of it is the woman who's living, the white woman who's poor and lives in a trailer with her kids feeling like she's constantly being told she has privilege and she's, Mm. you know, and and he, he asks her a really direct question about that that is, leads to a really, really interesting conversation about how you reckon with this kind of very extreme tribalism that has broken out in politics, certainly in America, but also all over the world. And she answers it so, I mean, she's just so great. But it's a really interesting conversation that goes to some difficult places. It's not just the usual Mm, kind of surface Mm. stuff. It was really, really good. And one of the out louders recommended it to me, actually popped into my DMs yesterday morning and said, run, don't walk, Hillary's on deck and I was like, okay. And it was as good as I'd been led to believe. Awesome. So armchair expert, you'll find it where you find your podcasts. My friend Hillary Clinton, in case you're confused. In case anyone was confused, Hillary Clinton. Uh, that is all we have time for on Mamma Mia Out Loud today. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is produced by Emma Gillespie. The EP of Mamma Mia Out Loud is Eliza Ratliff, and we will see you on Mamma Mia. Bye. Bye. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.